Warning. The following presentation contains information that might contradict what you have previously heard, or believed to be true, about how the human body works, and contains material that is not suitable for closed-minded individuals. Enjoy. Well, thanks for joining us again. We are picking up where we left off with the discussion on vaccines, focusing this time on the logical fallacies. Before we get into all the logical fallacies, one of the biggest issues that we tend to see amongst those who choose not to vaccinate, particularly against common diseases, is the fact that we don't see a lot of the quote-unquote common diseases. And the reason why we don't see a lot of the common diseases is because of the vaccines. And so what ends up happening is that when we choose not to vaccinate, particularly against diseases that we tend to think of as being common, particularly if you look back into the baby boomer generation and prior, the Gen Xers and the baby boomers were one of the first populations that had mass vaccinations taking place. And with those mass vaccinations, what ended up happening is that we had eradication of many diseases. And once again, we have to remember that eradication doesn't mean that the disease is no longer there. It's simply an indication that the disease does not get transmitted around the population. And with that eradication, what ended up happening is that we stopped seeing the disease at very high frequencies. And that led to a misconception that the disease no longer exists. And with that misconception, along with some of the logical fallacies that we're going to get to here in the discussion, we stopped vaccinating at high rates or high enough rates that would allow us to keep herd immunity for diseases. Over the last couple of decades, we've seen a reemergence of many of the diseases that we thought were eradicated, measles, mumps, whooping cough. And most of that stems from the fact that we had subpopulations within the major population that stopped vaccinating. And when we stopped vaccinating, it reduced the percentage of the population that was immunized and vaccinated against the disease. And that's because we could only do the herd immunity through vaccinations, or we can only maintain herd immunity through vaccinations because of the very low preponderance of individuals getting infected and becoming a contagion to the disease, pass, be able to pass on the disease to others within the population. And so when we start to have these uh, start to have these subpopulations interacting with larger communities. What ends up happening is that even though I am vaccinated against a disease, doesn't mean that I can't become infected. It simply means that the likelihood of me becoming a contagion, becoming able to transmit that disease to others within the community drops. And so when we start to reintroduce diseases, what ends up happening is we have two key factors within the physiology coming into play. One is the lifespan of vaccines is not for everybody's lifetime, which is why we have to do boosters. And a vaccine does not mean no infection. A vaccine means that if I do become infected, my immune system knows how to go about dealing with the response and will be able to keep myself from becoming a contagious person, someone who can pass the infection along, and from displaying signs and symptoms of the disease. 
And so we're going to go through the next few minutes here looking at some of the more common logical fallacies that are presented and why we have to be concerned about those logical fallacies and what we can do in order to counterbalance discussions with individuals who present these logical fallacies. So let's go ahead and let's talk about that. So what are the more common logical fallacies that we'll discuss here? And there are more than just what we're going to discuss here, but these are the more common of them when we start looking at the logical fallacies that we have to combat within our discussions with people who are against the use of vaccinations. These include things like the false dichotomy, the appeal to authority, the false equivalence, begging the question, or sometimes repeating a question or arguing with a question. Some people refer to this as sea lying, as in the, the animal, simply barking and barking and barking. The post hoc ergo prepare hoc, something we touched on previously. The straw man arguments, the ad hominem, the over-reliance on the antidotes and the anecdotal evidences, something we previously discussed. Red herrings. And then a, a fallacy sometimes referred to as the sunken cost or sometimes referred to as a base rate logical fallacy. And so how can we go about combating each one of these logical fallacies and what do each one of these logical fallacies mean in terms of dealing with the anti-vax person? And so let's start with the false dichotomy. The false dichotomy is the attempt to present a false position by basically proposing that there is an either or explanation. And so you're basically attempting to develop an either or opposition to each other when we don't have that in the actual discussion. The most common of these when it comes to uh, the vaccinations is that vaccines are, the, uh, excuse me, the, the argument is that vaccines are going to be 100% effective against all infections all of the time, or vaccines are going to be ineffective. It's an either or. It's either it's going to work 100% or it's not going to work. And if it doesn't work 100%, then it doesn't work at all. And what we're looking at when we look at vaccinations, just like with any other medical treatment, is we're looking at effects, effectiveness and efficiency of a, treat, of a treatment. And the efficacy of the treatment is not an all or none. One of the things that we have to remember when we start looking at vaccinations is that vaccinations are not attempting to prevent infections. What they're attempting to do is they're attempting to prevent contagion. They're attempting to prevent transmission of a disease within the population. And it does this by providing your body a means by which it's able to protect against infection when infection occurs. And so when we start having a discussion as it relates to the false dichotomy logical fallacy, what we have to present is we have to present that it's not uh, 100% effective or not effective. It's what is it attempting to do? And what it's attempting to do is it's attempting to minimize the likelihood of me becoming sick when I am infected and passing that infection on to somebody else. And so when we talk about vaccines working, what we're talking about is we're talking about the fact that it's training the body and training the immune system in such a way that it's going to reduce the likelihood of me becoming contagious. And by reducing the likelihood of me becoming contagious, it reduces the likelihood of me becoming sick and others around me becoming sick. The appeal to authority fallacy is where we put on a pedestal an expert, an authority figure. And whatever that authority figure says must be right. 
But the problem is, is that that only works if we follow groupthink. And it only works if we live within an echo chamber of our own wants and ideas, particularly when it comes to the realm of science and the realm of health. And so do we want to trust the experts? Yes, we want to trust the experts, but we have to be able to question the experts and the experts' opinions. And we have to question the experts and experts' opinions based off of what the science tells us, not what my opinion about something happens to be. And so when we start looking at the appeal to authority as a logical fallacy, what we have to do is we have to look at who is actually speaking and what is the credentials of the person. Those are two very important aspects to this. And whether or not that authority is willing to accept challenges to their ideas. And the challenges have to come from empirical evidence, and the challenges have to come from logical processing, logical inferences of that empirical evidence. And so what we have to look at here is we have to look at within the realm of the vaccinations, how does that expert handle challenges to the ideas that are being presented to them? And when we start looking at how they handle challenges to the ideas that are being presented, one of the ways that we know that we're not falling into an appeal to authority is when we start looking at and accepting of a consensus idea. And the consensus idea in science is not a consensus based off of democratic opinions and democratic voting. A consensus in science and a consensus in scientific principles and consensus within healthcare is based off of what does all of the research, all of the empirical objective measurements say is true. Because when we have to look at science and we have to look at healthcare, it's a true-false style of uh, testing in terms of the hypothesis. And if the hypothesis keeps coming back as true, then the consensus amongst scientists and the consensus amongst healthcare professionals has to be that this is correct. Could there be other points of disagreement? Yes. But what we have to do is we have to look at what does the consensus say. And based off of vaccination and vaccination research, the consensus states that vaccines are safe and effective. Vaccines do not cause many of the issues that are uh, stipulated by some individuals who are uh, pushing an anti-vaccination ideology the ones that are pushing the anti-vaccination ideology tend to fall to this appeal to authority fallacy based off of what they want the data to say, not what the data actually says. And so when we start looking at how can we combat the appeal to authority, what we have to do is we cannot immediately challenge the authority. But what we have to do is we have to present a logical and impassioned argument that focuses on what the consensus of the research states and show where the idea that is being presented would fall within that consensus. The false equivalency fallacy is attempting to make two things seem equal that are not actually equal. That's the key difference here. It's presenting two things that might have some credence to them as being equal, even though they aren't equal. So I study a lot of non-communicable disease issues, metabolic issues, 
And in the metabolic issue, one of the things that we look at is uh, increased inflammation causing chronic disease. And the way in which we combat that is by promoting lifestyle changes, by uh, improvement in macronutrients within the diet, by improving levels of physical activity and utilization of periodized exercise regimens as a means to control chronic inflammation stemming from the non-communicable disease aspect of health. There is a whole pathway, a neuroendocrine pathway, a hormone pathway that ends up with disease as the end state. Infection follows the same pathway, which means that we can, we can control some aspects of the signs and symptoms through diet and exercise through stress management issues and stress management techniques to limit how stress causes additional inflammation and additional disease onset. But that's in the realm of the non-communicable disease, the diseases that cannot be transmitted. And even though I can control some of my inflammation and some of my inflammatory processes by being more active and uh, making sure that my macronutrients and my micronutrients within my diet balance out with what my metabolic demands happen to be, I can assist my immune system in its response to an infectious agent. The aspects of diet and exercise are not the equivalent of being vaccinated. So being active and having an appropriate diet is important in conjunction with a vaccination in order to limit infection spread by making sure that my immune system is able to uh, mount a correct response to infection but it's not the equivalent of doing it. So when people would, would argue that, oh, all I have to do is live a, quote, healthy, end quote, lifestyle, I don't need vaccinations. All that's doing is it's minimizing one aspect of all of the various components that come into play as it relates to overall health and the ability to mount an appropriate immune response to an infection. That idea also leads into the some of the uh, TLC treatments that are out there, or the I, I guess we can use the old wives' tales or grandma's treatments, such as consuming the chicken soup when you're sick. And all of those TLC remedies and all of those grandma treatment re- remedies. What they're doing is that they're reducing overall level of stress, which allows for my immune system to properly function. And by allowing my immune system to properly function, it allows me to mount a better defense against the infection. But at the same time, what those avenues of treatment do is it sequesters myself away from other individuals so that I do not become contagion within the environment. And so if we want to look at that kind of avenue of the false dichotomy in terms of trying to counterbalance the argument, what we have to do is we have to look at, okay, what are we trying to do with the vaccine versus what are we trying to do with the lifestyle interventions? Because that's usually the the indication of the two is is we're going to promote one style, one lifestyle that was pro-health versus a different lifestyle that is pro-health. Without understanding that, we're simply promoting pro-health. And that's the, that's the idea here is that we're promoting pro-health. And so when people are going to try to false equivalent a pro-health lifestyle of macronutrient balance, micronutrient balance, exercise, and physical activity, 
to being the equivalent of vaccinations as it relates to immune functions. What we have to remember is that all we're doing is we're simply promoting a pro-health lifestyle. And it's not whether one is better than the other. It's the fact that we need both of them in order to have a pro-health slant to our life. The next fallacy that we tend to run into, you can think about as begging the question. Begging the question is where we are utilizing the question as the means for the avenue of debate. We are reframing question in order to establish our conclusion based off of the question that we are raising. Within the anti-vaccination debates, put quotes around the debates, this leads to a bad faith engagement. And at least a bad, bad faith engagement because by simply begging the question, you ignore anything that is being presented back to you. And the pro-vaccination people and the anti-vaccination people can both be at fault for, for using this logical fallacy as we tend to question and then question and then question and then question. And when the begging the question starts taking on the form of repeated questioning, and repeated questioning that tends to use viewpoint and argument as the uh, ultimate goal of the question, in which you're, you're framing the question to fit your viewpoint as opposed to framing the question to garner larger understanding of what's going on. You limit the ability for the person to have an honest uh, discussion. And the goal tends to be within this begging the question. Sometimes uh, I've heard this called sea-lioning, where you simply are just barking question after barking question after barking question. And a lot of the times the rebuttal to, to this is, I'm simply asking the questions because I want to understand. But they're not really asking the question because they want to understand. They're asking the question in order to basically infuriate the person who is attempting to respond to the questions. And when we're trying to use responses to questions as a means to engage in educational discussion, it becomes frustrating. And it becomes frustrating to the point where we stop responding at one point or another. And when we stop responding, it's an erroneous conclusion that's made by the person posing the question that they have won, put quotes around that, the debate. But they haven't won the debate. They, they simply have developed a rhetorical strategy by which you cannot provide an answer that they want because you're not answering to fit their viewpoint based off of what the question that is being raised happens to be from them. And so they're not just asking the questions. What they're doing is that they're trying to pose their viewpoint in the form of a question. And because they're, they're posing their viewpoint in the form of a question, it's not really a question. They're simply uh, formulating a statement, but instead of putting a period at the end, they're putting a question mark at the end. And so how can we get around this? I'm just asking a question. The best way of doing this is to have them explain what their question means. And by having them explain what their question means, ask logical probing questions that will attempt for the person posing the question, the person who's following this logical fallacy, to have to re-engage in an actual conversation. 
you don't come back to them by simply posing questions to their posing questions. Because once again, now we're simply in a logical fallacy feedback loop. But what you do is you ask them to simply explain what does the question mean? And when you ask them to explain what the question means, it gets them out of, I'm just asking the questions. Because asking questions are good. As any good scientist would tell you, the greatest questions out there are, what, when, where, and why? What, when, where, and why are the probing questions that garners 99.9999999% of scientific inquiry? And so when we're dealing with this, I'm just asking the question. We have to get out of that kind of feedback loop of question leads to question, leads to question, leads to question, leads to question, by allowing them to extrapolate what their intention for the question happens to be. And by having them have to state what the intention of the question happens to be, it gets them out of a locked framework and allows you to probe into and have a discussion about what their thinking happens to be. And what it does is allows you to present opposing information that might ultimately change their viewpoint. The post hoc ergo prepare hoc fallacy, which is something that we talked about as relates to the idea about I'm not going to get the vaccination because the last time I got the vaccination, I got sick. And that is the general argument that is made, particularly when it comes to the seasonal flu vaccinations that we get advertisements about. But it's also happened more recently with the, the COVID uh, pandemic. And the fallacy happens to come into play here based off of the fact that our brain wants to have causal relationships about everything. And what it attempts to do is it attempts to form a causal relationship between two things, an event and an outcome, when it's not actually causal, it's correlative. And so the idea in post hoc ergo prepare hoc, what happens last is the cause for this to happen, is the, the actual terminology here, is that it's the implication that correlation implies causation, which is not true. We tend to equate negative outcomes with events. And we, based off of the way in which memories are formed, memories are formed through emotional cognitive responses. And since memories are formed through emotional cognitive responses, we tend to have stronger emotional cognitive responses to negative things than to positive things. We tend to make a temporary association between a negative outcome with an event very quickly. And so when we start looking at this this false causal relationship that I got sick because I got a vaccination without understanding that what you exhibited immediately after getting the vaccine was simply the body going through the normal immune response to infection that very quickly subsides because we develop the memory responses to the infection quite quickly because we don't have the actual disease-causing entity. We don't have the actual disease. We are simply learning how to mount a response to the disease. But then we also have within a lot of the uh, ideas that, oh, well, the disease causes the same effects as the vaccine. And once again, you're looking at, and it goes into another fallacy, the, the, the reliance on the antidotes, is that what you're doing is that 
you're relying upon subjective responses and attempting to utilize those subjective responses to correlate with the dosing of the vaccination and then taking that correlation and forming a causal relationship within your own thinking processes. And so how can we go about combating this post hoc agero prepare hoc, this because it happened last must be the cause for logical fallacy, particularly as it relates to the vaccinations? Well, one of the things we have to do is we have to simply look at and explain the fact that when I get a vaccination, my body's going to go through the same response as if I got infected. But, and there's a big but here, but the responses are going to be excessively short and I'm not getting sick. The health events that come following the vaccinations is not me getting sick. It's my body going through the response as if I'm sick, but not actually getting sick. For those of you that have ever played sports, it's like having a practice game before you have the game. You go through all of the same things that you would normally go through in the game, but none of the results matter because it's simply practice. But then when I actually face the infection, because I've gone through the practice game, because I've mounted a response to an infection, I can go about and combat that infection quite easily. Very similar to the team that takes the practice game seriously. Utilizing all the things they learned in the practice game and taking it into the game itself and winning the game. We then get into the straw man fallacies and the straw man arguments. The straw man fallacy and the straw straw man arguments are typically coming about through a false oversimplification of the arguments. Instead of having a discussion about what the issue happens to be. And when it comes to vaccinations, the typical response that falls within straw man fallacies is the idea that safe and effective vaccines means there's no side effects. And so whenever we uh, use a drug for treatment, regardless of what drug we're discussing, there are effects and side effects. Side effects simply are things that happen physiologically due to something occurring that is not the intended occurrence. And so I take aspirin for headaches. Aspirin is safe and effective for headaches. But there's a side effect to it. And one of the side effects that can come about because of the chemical nature of aspirin is increased risk for ulcers. When it comes to vaccines, we say that vaccines are safe and effective. But then the the comment back is, but there are clear side effects to taking a vaccine. Well, there's side effects taking any medicine. And some of the side effects that we see with vaccines might be very similar to the effect Effects of a disease. And so what we have to remember is that with the vaccines, the side effects that we get from the vaccine are the effects of the disease. And so when we talk about things being safe and effective, we're not saying there are no side effects. What we're saying is that the side effects that might come from the vaccine are safer than the effects of the infection. It comes into a risk benefit analysis. 
where we have known risks and known known benefits. So K-N-O-W, risks, K-N-O-W, benefits. So we know the risks, we know the benefits. And when we start looking at the risks and benefits, if the benefits outweigh any of the potential risks, then we can conclude that the vaccine is safe. If that safe vaccine also minimizes the likelihood of infection becoming contagion, then we know that the vaccine is safe and effective. But what ends up happening in the strawman fallacy is that they will take the indicated risks regardless of benefits and oversimplify the indicated risks as the indication that they are not safe. And by doing that, they ignore the majority of what should be within the discussion. And by doing that, they present an overly simplified version of the argument without addressing what is the argument. And the argument here as it relates to vaccinations is do vaccinations limit the likelihood that I become infected, limit the likelihood that I become contagious, and minimize the effects on my body that would come from the infection? And so how do we go about discussing the use of vaccines and the need to use vaccines when someone utilizes the straw man fallacy? What we have to do is we have to present both sides of the argument. We have to accept the fact that, yes, risks are there. The the side effects occur. But, once again, big but here, but do those risks get outweighed by the benefits that come from using the vaccine. And when the side effects are excessively low or exceedingly low, as usually how it's referenced, particularly exceedingly low risks relative to being infected, then we can negate that straw man fallacy by simply reframing the viewpoint of the person arguing from that fallacy viewpoint. Which takes us to what usually happens once we start to delve into negating some of the ideology that comes into play here, and that's the ad hominem. And ad hominem is where you are arguing against the person as opposed to arguing against the position. And so earlier I talked about the fraud doctor, and I said I'm pointing towards having an ad hominem here. The reason why I use the word fraud doctor there is to indicate that the presentation of information was fraudulent. Did the person earn their doctorate? Yes. Did the person claim to be a doctor and have a doctorate? Yes. They are not a fraudulent doctor because they present themselves as being something they are not. To attack somebody based off of how they present themselves is an ad hominem. It's where we are attacking the person, not attacking the argument. The, what I'm attacking when I say fraud doctor is I'm attacking the argument that's being presented in the fraudulency of the vaccination discussion. And so when we have the ability to discuss issues as it surrounds vaccine and vac- vaccine efficacy, we cannot rebut statements based off of the attack on the person. What we have to do is we have to look at, okay, what is their viewpoint and what is their viewpoint based on? Is their viewpoint based off off of 
a fallacy that they are appealing to authority. I am the authority figure. You must listen to me. Or this is the person that I read that says you're wrong. We have to attack those points, not attack the person themselves. And so what we have to do is we have to fall back away from the idea that if someone disagrees with my perspective, it's not that they're disagreeing with me, they're disagreeing with my perspective. And the way in which we have to get away from feeling personally attacked is understand that if I utilize a personal attack to get back at a personal attack, I am simply caught in a logical fallacy feedback loop. And so when we look at this in terms of how we go about discussing vaccinations with individuals, what we have to do is we have to say, okay, I understand where your viewpoint is coming from. Here's where I disagree with that viewpoint. Understanding that everybody has the right to their own viewpoint, has a right to have their opinion. We don't have to accept their opinion. We don't have to accept their viewpoint, but we have to acknowledge the fact that they have that viewpoint. And when we acknowledge the fact that they have that viewpoint, we immediately depersonalize that because what we're doing is saying, okay, I acknowledge that is your viewpoint. Here is where I disagree with the viewpoint. I'm not disagreeing with you as being you. I'm disagreeing with what your viewpoint happens to be. And I'm disagreeing with your viewpoint because of fact A, B, C, D in consensus X, Y, and Z. And when, I, when I'm able to do that, I start to lower the defensiveness. And because I start to lower the defensiveness, we can start having more of a nuanced discussion. If I cannot lower the defensiveness, we cannot have a nuanced discussion. And without having the ability to have a nuanced discussion, it really doesn't matter what we're, what we're discussing because no one's going to increase their understanding in totality. Now, something we talked about previously and something that falls back on a number of the other fallacy arguments that usually comes up is the reliance on the antidotes or reliance upon anecdotal evidence. And reliance upon anecdotal evidence is where I, re- I formulate a generalized conclusion based on my own subjective understanding of something that happened to me or something that happened that I saw happen without taking a step back and turning that subjective viewpoint into an objective viewpoint. And so when we start looking at how we can go about discussing with people who are against vaccines, as relates to this reliance upon the antidotes, what we have to do is we have to uh, look at the same way that we looked at de- dealing with the post hoc ergo prepare hoc. Because what the, the antidotes are doing is that they're making that same fallacy. And the same fallacy is that something happened because something occurred. And those two things are linked in a causal relationship when it could be simply correlative at best. And this is where my we, they'll make an argument that they have a friend of a friend of a friend that got a vaccine and within 15, 20, 30, 40 minutes, one day, two days, this other symptom came about, this other side effect came about. And as I tell my students and as a former professor told me at one point in time, what happens to one person is what happens to one person. And so just because there's a personal antidote to an event doesn't mean that that personal experience is going to be the generalized response for everyone. It may be that that person saw side effects come about, 
but the side effects may be caused by something entirely different than the vaccine that they want to link to the the occurrence. We cannot infer a conclusion about a generalized response from a single personal experience. And so how can we go about combating the reliance on the antidotes? Once again, we have to acknowledge the fact that we accept that person had that experience. But at the same time, what we have to do is we have to remember that every experience that we have falls within a continuum of every possible experience that is out there. And every possible experience that's out there means that there is a probability, no matter how small, that that response may occur in more than one person. But at the same time, what happened to that one person may not be explained to what's happening to every person. Because without sitting back and objectively looking at all of the evidence that's there and logically processing out through inductive reasoning in order to infer a conclusion, we cannot draw a generalization about the vaccine and the effects of that vaccine from the antidote. We could possibly deduce a hypothesis that we can then go about testing through empirical observations in order to form an inference about the truthfulness of the correlation and the truthfulness of the causal relationship that we want to develop from the correlation. But at the same time, we cannot use that single incident as the end-all be-all of the vaccine and of the vaccine's efficacy or effectiveness. There were a number of antidotes that came out during the push for the initial wave of vaccinations that led many people to not want to vaccinate because of these personalized stories. But once again, those personalized stories are taking us on a logical fallacy tour away from where we want to be in our conversations in order to determine, should we vaccinate? Yes. And encourage people who don't want to vaccinate to vaccinate. Which takes us to the last couple of major logical fallacies and one of the bigger ones that's out there. And the bigger one that's out there is the red herring fallacy. The red herring fallacy is trying to win an argument by shifting the discussion to a different topic than what is being argued. And when it comes to vaccinations and when it comes to pharmaceutical treatments and when it comes to a lot of other investigations, it comes down to the debate not being about or the conversation not being about the outcomes of the treatment, but who's funding the treatment and conflicts of interests and biases that can come about because of this idea that if someone is funding the research, then the research is inherently biased and inherently flawed, where the accusation within the red herring fallacy is that you're automatically dishonest in your conclusions because of the fact that the pharmaceutical companies are funding the research. Now, when we start looking at the red herring, the red herring tends to uh, include other types of logical fallacies within it. As you notice, there was, a re- there was an ad hominem within that discussion. Yes, pharmaceutical companies fund research for their pharmaceuticals. Yes, pharmaceutical companies do research on their pharmaceuticals. Yes, vaccine makers do research on their vaccines. But just because they are doing research, just because they are funding research, does not mean that the conclusions being drawn are biased or fraudulent. When we publish research, we must disclose conflicts of interest 
and we must disclose funding sources. That disclosure is an indication that there might be bias. There might be bias. One of the things that happens with published articles and with published research is that independent scientists are able to view, are able to review, and are able to, if properly disclosed in terms of methodology, replicate studies. Other scientists are able to accumulate different studies and perform secondary analyses known as meta-analytical analysis that attempts to limit the bias that might be presented in a single study, if there is bias within a single study. But just because a vaccine company or a pharmaceutical company is funding the research does not mean that there's an immediate conflict of interest or immediate uh, presentation of bias in the interpretation of the findings. And just because study is funded or a scientist is funded or the lab is endowed by a company with money to run research, doesn't mean that the interpretation of the findings are inherently wrong just because of the funding issues. Are there instances where bias has been published? Yes. But just because there's instances of biases being published doesn't mean that all publications are biased. What we have to recognize is that scientists seek out funding to conduct their research. It's not a sign of being nefarious. It's not a sign of being evil or being in cahoots with big pharma as the logical fallacy, the red herring fallacy would indicate. What's the indication of is the scientist having a position to be able to do research. And so when we are having these discussions with people who bring up the, oh, it's the big pharma thing. I'm simply going to take this quote unquote natural herb remedy. Well, where is the natural herb remedy coming from would be a rebuttal question. Because if they're not going to utilize the pharmaceutical because of a red herring fallacy, but they're going to utilize the natural herb, it's the same red herring fallacy. And so when we're attempting to discuss the red herring fallacy, what we have to do is we have to accept the fact that research is funded. We have to accept that fact. But just because research is funded doesn't mean that the research conclusions, the generalizations that come about through logical inferences are also biased. And this is where understanding how to go about reading scientific journals and understanding how consensuses are made allows us to uh, reduce the likelihood of falling for red herrings or allowing others to use red herrings in defense of their positions. The last of the fallacies that tend to come about within discussions as it relates to the anti-vaxxers and with people who are not necessarily anti-vaxxers but are hesitant to get vaccinations is the idea of the sunken cost or sometimes a base rate fallacy. The sunken cost fallacy is where I have invested so much time, energy, and effort into one thing that I cannot accept something else, that I must keep going with what I have already invested myself into. And because I have this investment in this position, I must hold true to that position. And when I have this sunken cost idea, I tend to also conflate different variables within the responses that we see with medicines, in particular with vaccinations, 
to something that is a proof about my sunken cost as it relates to the anti-backs. And that goes to the base rate fallacy too. So the base rate fallacy is basically dealing with the chance of something happening as the uh, specific example that there is no value to the vaccine. And this is where we start looking at how many, how much of a population was vaccinated but still happened to become infected, how much of a population was still infected or still vaccinated but was hospitalized, how much of the population was vaccinated but still uh, transmitted a disease. And so when we start looking at this, this base rate fallacy, it combines with the second cost fallacy. And when we start looking at the space rate fallacy, what we start doing is we start equating percentages within stories of responses as being a generalized response across all people. And so one of the ideas was the 20%, 50%, 80% idea about vaccinated people needing to be hospitalized because of COVID as it relates to the COVID issues. Or the 15% of people who have been vaccinated against the flu, typically exhibiting flu-like symptoms. And it's a false interpretation of the incidence and prevalence rates within a population. And that comes into the way in which we get the reports about the incidence and prevalence rates, because we don't present it in terms of the number of individuals out of all individuals. We simply see reports based off of percentages of something. And because we see it as presented as percentages of something, it allows for misinterpretation of the math. Just like the sunken cost idea leads to misinterpretation of the value of different opinions leading to greater understanding. And so if we start looking at the incidence rates and the prevalence rates of diseases based off of how much of the population becomes infected due to uh, actual individuals relative to actual individuals as opposed to percentages of cases that get presented within a hospital, we'd have a better understanding of the true incidence and prevalence rates within a population. And we have to present that as such when we start discussing these issues with individuals who are against vaccines because they see reports that say 20% of the population reported to the hospitals but were... Are, but also stated they were vaccinated, or 50%, or 80%. Well, if two people presented to the hospital and one of them said that they were vaccinated, that would indicate that 50% of the population was vaccinated but got infected, as opposed to one person out of the two total people that came to the hospital with this issue was also vaccinated, because that's a whole entirely different story. And so when we start looking at how can we go about dealing with individuals whose arguments are based off of logical fallacies, what we have to do is we have to take a step back and we have to acknowledge the fact that they're okay to have their opinions. But what we can't do is we cannot formulate the entirety of everybody's argument off of their own individual opinions. And that we have to look at what does the evidence tell us what does the consensus tell us? What does the logical processing of information tell us about vaccines and the fact that vaccines are safe and effective and there's no reason to not vaccinate when given the opportunity? Well, thanks for listening. 
Thanks for watching. If you're on the YouTube, please remember to give us that five-star review. Give us a big thumbs up if you're liking what we're putting out there. If you haven't subscribed, please make sure you subscribe. Please make sure you click the alert button. It will help us out with all of the metrics. And as always, you can follow us on all of the various platforms that we are publishing.